The reading this morning is in two parts. The second part is a single verse from Romans chapter 8. If you'd like to find page 1135, 1135, that's Romans chapter 8, and then keep your finger in the page there. And the main part of the reading from Jeremiah chapter 29, which is on page 789. Jeremiah chapter 29, page 789, beginning at verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And now Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Well, earlier this week, whilst I was doing some research for this talk on Jeremiah 29:11, for that I know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and the future. I came across a word which was an addition to my vocabulary, Twitter-pated. Now, you probably think that that is a recent word. Its providence is only sort of 10 years old from the time that Twitter, that 140 interactive messaging facility, which I've never used, um, arose. But you'd be wrong. And I thought I needed something now that the students have returned from university, just to remind them that we are the intellectual centre of the south of England, I thought something for them, 
because actually it's from the 1942 Bambi cartoon. And this little clip will explain to you, and you might need a tissue um, what, and a memory, um, what Twitter-pated means. Don't you know? They're Twitter-pated. Twitter-pated? Yes. Nearly everybody gets Twitter-pated in the springtime. For example, <clears throat> you're walking along, minding your own business. You're looking neither to the left nor to the right, when all of a sudden, you run smack into a pretty face. You begin to get weak in the knees. Your head's in a whirl. And then you feel light as a feather. And before you know it, you're walking on air. And then you know what? You're not for a loop, and you completely lose your head. Gosh, that's awful. Gee whiz, terrible. And that ain't all. It can happen to anybody. So you'd better be careful. It could happen to you, and you, and... Yes, it could even happen to you. Well, it's not gonna happen to me. Me neither. Me neither. I'll bet it seemed like a thousand dogs. <laughs> no! Uh, uh, uh. <sighs> Twitter-pated. What's Twitter-pated? Well, I'll tell you when you're older. Well, have you ever been Twitter-pated? Twitter-pated means to be completely enamoured with someone or something. The flighty, exciting feeling you get when you think about the object of your affections. The ever-increasing acceleration of heartbeat and body temperature as a result of being engulfed amidst the exhilaration and joy of being romantically involved with somebody else. It could be used like this. When he smiled at her, the rush of warm, fuzzy, excited sensations that filled her made her realise she was completely twitterpated with this man. Well... Being twitterpated, though, is not a good state of mind to be in when you're trying to understand the Bible correctly. In my uh, early 20s, there was a popular little devotional book called Daily Light. It was simply a collection of nice verses out of the Bible, but unfortunately, out of context. I know, I had a copy and I used it. 
And Jeremiah 29.11 was amongst its most popular and frequently repeated verses. And we remind you of it again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I knew one very intelligent young man who used this verse to send a note to a young lady who caught his attention, expressing the desire to meet and discuss the possibility of their futures together. Unfortunately for him, she read it in what was then a recently published um, New English Bible translation where future and a hope is translated a future and children. Such uh, forward planning, even for somebody, and he did look like Denzel Washington, was more than any girl he approached could take. And he never learnt, and he never got anywhere over three years. I know another young man who, uh, who um, if this verse popped up, thought that uh, his advances towards the object of his desire were most likely to meet with favour that day as he tried desperately hard to break her otherwise impenetrable defences. He seemingly got nowhere. He should have applied his brains, actually, to study the passage in context. It was about the future fortunes of the people of God who were at that time in exile as a punishment in Babylon. And God was assuring them through Jeremiah that rebellious as they were, some of them would come to their senses they would return and they would be used by him to further the plans and promises that he'd had in place for all eternity. I came to call it daily magic rather than daily light. I transferred my devotional reading to something more substantial and eventually the object of my desire became my wife. A text, you see, without a context is a pretext Translation and context matter. Um, while the false prophets confidently uh, predicted that Judah would be delivered from the Babylonian threat, Jeremiah, with equal confidence, predicted that Jerusalem would fall to the besieging Babylonian army and called on them to surrender. But Jeremiah was, of course, right. The city fell in 597 BC. And the leaders of the nation were taken into Babylonian exile. Once the people had settled there, Jeremiah wrote a letter to them, telling them to build houses and to live in them, to plant gardens and to sell their produce, to develop their family life and to seek the welfare of the city. They were not to listen to the dreams of the false prophets that they would soon return to Jerusalem. Only after 70 years, Jeremiah revealed, would the Lord bring them back. However, the promise that God then made to the Babylonian exiles has often been legitimately reapplied to Christians in distress and pain. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope, and a future. But we have to zoom out and set the promise within the whole divine drama of salvation history rather than just on one particular episode. 
So firstly, God has a plan, has plans for his people. Life may appear to be haphazard. History has been described as being like the tracks made on white paper by the feet of a drunken fly. But no, life is not random, meaningless or absurd. God had plans for the exiles and he has plans for us as well. Secondly, God knows his plans. He does not necessarily divulge them, but he has them and he knows them. Parents, after all, begin to make plans for their children before they're born, and so does our Heavenly Father. And thirdly, God's plans are good plans. The Babylonian exiles must have found this hard to believe, but God was determined to give them a future and a hope. You see, God has to fulfil the promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. There, Abraham, by faith, became the first member of the people of God. And it would be through his descendants, God promised, those made up um, by faith rather than birth, who would, who would be used by God to reach all people groups and to incorporate all the penitent faithful into his new everlasting community. Whatever tried to prevent God from his plans and purposes being realised, he overcame. The list included infertility, spiritual adultery and accommodation to the ways of their neighbours, a famine that could have wiped them out, captivity in a foreign land, invasion by foreign powers, internal division, neglecting, even losing the scriptures, ignoring the prophets, silencing the messengers. Whatever it was, God overcame the obstacles to ensure his plan's success. And perhaps the New Testament equivalent of Jeremiah 29.11 is Romans 8.28 where we're assured that God works all things together for our good. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now in Romans 8, the last 12 verses or so, um, the apostle soars to the sublime heights unequaled elsewhere in the New Testament. Having described the chief privileges of justified believers, which, were the, which are the peace with God, Romans 5, union with Christ, freedom from the law in Romans 7, and life in the spirit, Romans 8. His great spirit-directed mind now sweeps over the whole plan and purpose of God from past eternity to an eternity that is still to come from the divine foreknowledge and predestination to the divine love from which absolutely nothing will ever be able to separate us. Now obviously, in the present time, in the real world, the fallen world, we do experience times of suffering and this creation groans. But we should be sustained in the midst of them by the hope of glory to come. So far, it's only a hope because it's still future, unseen and unrealised. But it is not on that account uncertain. On the contrary, our Christian hope is solidly grounded on the unwavering love of God. 
So the burden of Paul's climax is the eternal security of God's people on account of the eternal unchangeability of God's purpose, which is itself due to the eternal steadfastness of God's love. These tremendous truths the Apostle declares three times over, although from three different perspectives. He begins with five unshakable convictions in verse 28 about God working all things together for the good of his people. He continues with five undeniable affirmations in 29 and 30 regarding the successive stages of God's saving purpose from eternity to eternity. And he concludes with five unanswerable questions in 31 to 39 in which he challenges anybody to contradict the convictions and the affirmations which he's just expressed. We only have time this morning to consider the first five found in this one verse, Romans 8, 28. Five unshakable convictions. It's surely one of the best-known texts in the Bible. On it, believers of every age have focused their minds. It would not be too unhealthy if we were to say that we should and could be twitterpated in our minds since the thought of life with Christ after this life and an eternity with him in a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth should be the dominant focus of our future thinking around which we orientate our life now. Now verse 28 begins with the statement, we know, just as verse 22 had begun similarly. And there we have two assertions of Christian knowledge, one about the groaning creation and the other about God's providential care. Yet there are many other things which we do not know. For example, we do not know what we ought to pray for, Romans 8, 26. In fact, we are caught in a continuous tension between what we know and what we do not know. And it's just as foolish to claim to know what we do not know as it is to confess not to know what we do know. And they're common mistakes in the Christian church throughout time. In those areas in which God has not plainly revealed his mind, the right attitude for us to adopt is that of Christian agnosticism. Agnosticism literally means no knowledge. So it's okay to be literally ignorant of things which God has not revealed his mind to us on. Remember Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. So, there are things we don't know because God knows we don't need to know. And there are things that he wants to make sure we do know. And in verse 28, Paul lists five truths about God's providence that we do know. First, we know that God works, or is at work, in our life. We read, for example, in the NIV, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
If you are of a certain age, which would make you eligible for holiday at St. Mary's, you'll probably have in mind the authorised or the King James Version, where um, the rendering is, all things work together for good, which is surely wrong, since all things do not automatically work themselves together into a pattern of good. The authorised version statement would only be acceptable if it is the sovereign guidance of God that is presumed as the undergirding and directing force behind all of life's events. But if, uh, as the English Standard Version does, you follow the translation follows the order of the Greek words, then you can have a translation which does have, uh, we know that for those who love God, they don't actually have he is working, but you could put that there. So it reads, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, he is ceaselessly, energetically and purposefully active on their behalf. Secondly, God is at work for the good of his people. Being himself wholly good, his works are all expressions of his goodness and are calculated to advance his people's good. What's more, the good which is the goal of all his providential dealings with us is our ultimate well-being, namely our final salvation, which verses 29 and 30 make clear. And thirdly, God works for our good in all things. All things must include the sufferings of verse 17 in Romans 8 and the groanings in Romans 8.23. So all that is negative in this life is seen to have a positive purpose in the execution of God's eternal plan. Now all of us suffer in this life to some extent. There is a variation in the nature and the degree to which we suffer, but we do all suffer in some way. Now two people can suffer from the same thing and yet their response can be so very different. We all observe that. One responds by being angry with God and often takes that anger out on those around them, especially God's people. It's hard to get at God if you're angry, but you can be angry with his messengers. The other person rather than get angry with God, sees misfortune as something that is simply part of this fallen world. And rather than get angry, decides to enlist God's grace to see them through it to the end. An end which can be the glorious and perfect recreation. So nothing is beyond the overruling the overriding scope of his promises. And fourthly, God works in all things for the good of those who love him. This is a necessary limitation. Paul isn't expressing a general superficial optimism that everything tends to everybody's good in the end. No, if the good, which is God's objective, is our completed salvation, then its beneficiaries are his people who are described as those who love him. 
And then fifthly, those who love God are also described as those who have been called according to his purpose. Their love for him is a sign and token of his prior love for them, which has found expression in his eternal purpose and his historical call of them. So God has a saving purpose, and he's working it out in accordance with it. Life is not a random mess, which, may, which it may sometimes appear to be. So these five truths about God, which Paul writes, we know. We do not always understand what God is doing, let alone welcome it, nor are we told that he is at work for our comfort, but we know that in all things he is working towards our supreme good. And one of the reasons we know this is is that there are many examples of it throughout the scriptures. A classic one would be Joseph's conviction about his brother's cruelty in selling him to Egypt. When they do come up, to buy grain from the Egyptians. He says to them, when he first encounters them, after decades of being separated from them, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives, Genesis 50, 20. You see, God had prepared decades in advance, for a famine which he knew would come along in the ancient Near East. And with it, the great risk of wiping out Abraham's grandson and his great-grandsons and their families. But by using the jealous brother's injustice to Joseph, he ultimately saved that little embryonic people of God, that little clan that was forming. He saved them because they were able to go to Egypt where their brother had become the Grand Vizier and was in a position to actually take account of the dream God gave him of the seven fat years and the seven lean years. And he was able to store up grain in the fat years so that come the lean years, people would not die of starvation. And they came to Egypt, and they were saved, at least humanly speaking. But God had saved his plan and purpose, which will one day be fulfilled at the very end of time. His people were able to continue in existence. His plans would move on to the next stage. And similarly, Jeremiah writing to these Jews in exile in Babylon after the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem. And he says to them, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. After judgment, there would come to be hope as God worked once again towards the fulfilment of his goals through his often uncooperative people. And the same occurrence or concurrence of human evil and divine plan had its most conspicuous display in the cross, which Peter attributed both to the wickedness of men, Acts 2.23, and to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, Acts 
So as we conclude and take away four things, let us uh, be focused on the future realisation of God's grand plan, our eternal life with him in his perfected new creation. Secondly, be reassured that as we look back into that period of biblical history from 2000 BC to the time of the Apostle Paul, we see how God time and time again achieved his purposes in the face of great odds. He's got a reliable track record on delivering. And if things are adverse for you here, then understand them in the context of your part in the success of God's grand plan. How through such circumstances he is preparing you for eternal life with him. And finally, do not distance yourself from him. That will only make you bitter. Rather, enlist his resources to see you through to the end and refine you in the process. Let us pray. Guard your church, O Lord, with your perpetual mercy. And because in our frailty we cannot stand without you, keep us from all that may harm and lead us to all that makes for our salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.